Hey, River Valley, super excited to have Gary Haugen with us here, the founder of IJM. Uh, we are just delighted that he said yes to our request. You're going to learn a little bit more about him in this video and then open up your hearts to hear what he has to say. We have operations all over the world rescuing people from slavery because today there are criminals who abuse children, sell girls. How old is she? force families into slavery. Criminals prey on the easiest target, the world's poor, because they expect no one to defend them. But today, there are thousands of people gathering to seek justice for those in slavery. We are a group of lawyers, counselors, activists, and supporters. We are called International Justice Mission. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is a great joy to get to be here with you at River Valley this weekend. And I obviously can't possibly know where each one of you are in your own journey of trying to follow Jesus. I feel like I've been trying to follow Jesus for a long time, but I still find myself challenged by a very simple question, and that's just this. Are Jesus and I really interested in the same things? Now, we can make a list of all the things that we're interested in, right? You could make your list and I could make my list. But what if we set all those lists aside for a few moments? And what about if we asked from first principles, but what is God interested in? And what if we actually said, but what is God passionate about? And could other people know what God is passionate about? by what it is that we are passionate about. I'd like to spend a few moments just talking a little bit about two of the more unfamiliar passions of God. And that's first his passion for the world and then his passion for justice. First, God's passion for the world. We all know from John three sixteen, where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but would inherit eternal life. We know from this that the whole coming of Jesus into the world was motivated by God's passion for the world. And that means, of course, his love for all these bazillions of people who are stretched across all these confusing continents and cultures. This is what God loves, this great, big, huge world. Now, by contrast, what do I love? What am I passionate about? Well, to tell you the truth, every single day, I'm completely passionate about me. I love me. I'm fascinated by me, like every day. Right? I don't have to wake up in the morning and remind myself to think of me. Right? That comes very naturally. Now, my pastor at home, he says, this is more narrow than I should be as a follower of Jesus. And so I'm trying to open the borders of my heart, right, to extend love and compassion. 
And so on a good day, I will find myself extending love and care to all the people in the universe who are in my immediate family. And that's a pretty good day in my household, actually, where I'll extend more love and care to my wife and four kids than I do to myself. And they usually circle that day on the calendar. And they pray it might happen again next year, you know. And then I will have maybe some even larger spiritual experience and I will find my heart growing so that I extend love and compassion to all the people in the world that I like and who like me and who are maybe like me. And this then becomes my world of passion and energy and focus, right? It's this little shriveled world of just me and mine. Now, I think Jesus finds this perfectly understandable. This is perfectly natural. But I don't think everything natural and understandable is necessarily godly. So at least you and I can maybe agree upon what the goal is. And even if we're not there right now, we can agree isn't the goal to have a heart that's becoming more of like the heart of God. That shares something of his love and care for the world. Now, see, this came home to me in a pretty devastating and personal way. In 1994, long ago, you might remember this horrific Rwandan genocide that broke out in which 800,000 people, think about this, were murdered, 800,000 people in eight weeks' time. That's like having 9-11 happen three times a day, every day for eight weeks. And at the end of the genocide, the international community wanted to try to bring the leaders of the genocide to justice. And so I was serving as a prosecutor at the U.S. Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., and I was put on loan to become the director of the U.N.'s genocide investigation. And all murder investigations just begin with where the bodies are. And most of the bodies actually were in churches. Because the Tutsi minority group had run to churches for sanctuary, but then their Hutu neighbors would just wade into them and hack them all to death. And so I was spending days just sorting through the carnage of all that. But I have to tell you, the hardest part of it for me was actually having to interview the survivors, and especially some of the little children who'd survived these massacres. And I remember one day I was was sitting across from this little girl. She was just eight years old. And I'm sitting across from her at this table and I'm trying to get her story from her because she had survived one of the massacres. She had actually lay amongst the dead in one of these churches for for two and a half days. And I'm trying to get her story out of her. And the first thing you would have noticed about her was the first thing I noticed, which was really just how beautiful she was. Somehow she still had this sparkle in her eyes She would say something funny to make herself laugh and then these white teeth would just burst across her face. And she was was gorgeous. And I remember looking into the eyes of this this little eight-year-old Rwandan girl when it occurred to me in a way that I had never really thought of before, that the maker of the entire universe specifically intended that this one little eight-year-old Rwandan girl should exist. And not only that, but he intended that this one little girl should exist to be with him forever. And he wanted this particular little Rwandan eight-year-old girl to be with him forever so desperately 
that he was willing to give up his own son to be murdered to make sure that this little eight-year-old girl was going to be with him forever. And suddenly I was just blown away by the cosmic significance of this one little eight-year-old girl. But I also knew from the pink machete scars across the back of her head and her neck that she was just about a millimeter of a machete blow from being part of that huge pile of corpses that we had been sorting through. And then it occurred to me that about 800,000 other Rwandans who were just as precious to God as this little girl, they could all just drop off the face of the earth, right? In the summer of 1994. And honestly, as an American Christian, it just wouldn't affect my day at all. And suddenly I could sense that there was a significant difference, right? Between the way Jesus was regarding the world and the way I was regarding the world. And so it's been a journey now for me to try to open up the borders of my heart, to try to share something of his love for the world. Because I didn't want to be that far away from what really mattered to him. But you know, it's interesting, as you go into that world and as you try to share something of the love of God in that world, what do you imagine is probably the most difficult thing for people to believe about the Christian faith? I think it's simply the idea that God is good because they're in so much pain. You know, today in our world, there will be about 10,000 kids who died just because their parents couldn't get them enough food. And honestly, how are they supposed to believe that God is good? Or what about the 1.5 billion people in our globe who have no access to medical care? Zero. They're not arguing about whether or not their medical plan will allow them to choose their doctor, right? They will never see a doctor. And when their kids are hurting and suffering, how are they supposed to believe that God is good? In fact, if we think about this, what is God's plan for making it believable that he is good for all of those who are hurting so much in our world. What is God's plan? Well, the answer from the Bible is a little bit surprising because it turns out that we're the plan and that he doesn't have another plan. Do you remember what Jesus said to us, his disciples? He said to us, you are the light of the world. Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love this because you notice he doesn't say, he doesn't say to us, you might be the light of the world or you could be the light of the world or I hope you guys turn out to be the light of the world. He says to us, you're it. This is why the Apostle Paul says one of the most amazing things in Scripture where he says God is making his appeal to the world through us. And so for 2,000 years now, Christians have been trying to make it believable that God is good by going to those who are in need and showing them the goodness of God. So if people in our world have never heard the gospel that God loves them, sent his son to die for them. We're the ones who actually get to share the gospel with them. And if others are suffering because they don't have food, then for heaven's sakes, we can help share ours. And if others are suffering because they don't have doctors or medicine, we can help them with that. And when we do that, 
they see the body of Christ, which is what we're called. They actually see the body of Christ show up and it becomes believable to them that God is good. You know, it's interesting because there's actually another category of people who are hurting in our world. And it's interesting because they're not suffering because they don't have access to the gospel or because they don't have doctors or they don't have food or they don't have medicine. These are the people who are suffering in our world because of the intentional abuse and oppression of other people. These are the victims of injustice in our world. Now, in America, pretty much the word injustice has lost all of its meaning, right? I mean, it means everything, it means nothing. As an American, I feel pretty much like I'm a victim of injustice pretty much like all day, every day, practically, right? In fact, just the other day, I'm, I'm at the grocery store, right? And I don't know about you, but I'm always using the express lane, right? Because I'm busy and I'm in the express lane, but there's rules about the express lane. And I don't know what it is in your grocery store, but in mine, there's a big sign that says 10 items only. So I'm there the other day, I got my grocery cart and I got my 10 items. Guy in front of me, 13 items? I could to he's totally breaking the law. And he's jamming up the, you know, the express lane. And I'm getting so mad at the guy. I'm a lawyer. I could sue this guy, like right here. <laughs> well, just so you know, when the Bible talks about injustice, this is not what it's talking about. Injustice in the Bible is actually a particular kind of sin. Injustice is about the abuse of power. The abuse of power to take from someone else what God intended for them, their life, their liberty, their dignity, the fruit of their love and their labor. And when someone is stronger to just, just takes those things away because they can, God calls this the sin of injustice. This is the sin that King David committed when he abused his power as king to actually steal another man's wife. And then he abused his power to take that man's life. And the prophet Nathan had to confront him for his abuse of power. But what does this sin of injustice look like in our world today? Well, in 1997, I left my job at the U.S. Department of Justice and helped form this Christian ministry called International Justice Mission. And we're a collection of Christian lawyers and criminal investigators and social workers. And we take, a, take on cases of violent abuse against those who are poorest in our world. And so now I have a pretty clear picture of what injustice looks like in our world. And I'll never forget meeting a young boy in India named Kumar. He lived in a poor rural village. And when he was five years old, his parents passed away. And at, by the age of eight, he had been sold into a brick factory as a slave. And he works 12 to 14 hours a day making and carrying bricks. And even on days when he's been too sick to work, the owner would just kick him in the head and drag him right back to work. In the factory, there's about 70 other slaves held illegally and forced to work there. Do you know that in our world today, more than 40 million people are held illegally in slavery. We've met tens and thousands of them by name. And so the question is, how today is Kumar supposed to find it believable that God is good? Or the other millions who are held in literal slavery in our world today? 
Or what about Alina? This was an 11-year-old girl I met in the Philippines. And one day she suffered a horrific sexual assault that just crushed her life. But the terrible thing about it was the man who committed it was the actual chief of police in her town. We operate in very poor communities around the world where there's just an, an epidemic of sexual violence against women and girls. And so for these millions of young girls who are victims of this kind of violence today, how is Alina, how are these girls somehow supposed to find it believable that God loves them? Or what about Jyoti? I met Jyoti when she was about 16 years old. She was living in a rural part of India with a poor family and she was trying to help the family make it. And one day some women came to her and said, hey, Jyoti, why don't you come with us to the big city? You can help get a, we can get you a job there and then you can send some of that money home to your family to, to help them. And so Jyoti went with these ladies, but on the way, many hundreds of miles to, to Mumbai, the big city in, in India, they gave her some tea that was drugged. And she fell unconscious. And instead of taking her to the city to get a job, they took her to the red light district and they sold her into a brothel for about $250. And she's stuffed into this underground room underneath the brothel and just beaten for three days until she's forced to provide services to the customers there. Jyoti has to service between 20 and 30 men a day, never let outside of that brothel. UNICEF tells us that there are more than 2 million children held in forced prostitution in our world. And so the question is how today is Joe T and these other girls, how are they supposed to find it believable that God is good? In fact, how does God regard all of this suffering and abuse in our world? Well, fortunately, the Bible tells us how God regards it. And I'll never forget being in Rwanda in the midst of those mass graves when I discovered Psalm 10. Psalm 10 tells us, because the psalmist is talking about all the violence he sees in the world, and in verses 17 and 18, he sets forth the truth about God. It says, you hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Or Psalm 35 puts it this way. Do we have that up there? It says in another passage, O Lord, who is like you? You rescue the poor from those who are too, too strong for them. I could go to verse after verse in the scripture where it makes it clear that God hates this abuse and he wants it to stop. But I've always asked, but what is God's plan for actually doing that? And once again, the answer from the Bible comes as a shock to me because it turns out that we're the plan and that he doesn't have another plan. Micah chapter six, verse eight says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Isaiah 117 says, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. For those of us who've come to take the Bible seriously, there can be no doubt that God has given to us the work of justice in the world. But you know, if you're like you and me and we learn that we're the plan for justice, man, I don't, 
my response is kind of, okay, God, we're just brainstorming here and no ideas are bad, but that's a bad plan. We feel so powerless, don't we? We hear these stories and these statistics and we can just feel bolted to our chairs with despair. But in those moments, I I find it so helpful to remember these stories in the Bible when the disciples were feeling exactly the same way. And my favorite, perhaps, is the the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember how this starts out? Jesus has been preaching for a long time and everybody's getting hungry. And so the disciples have a great idea. They say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, why don't you send everyone home so they can get themselves fed? But Jesus doesn't want to miss out on the fun of this particular situation. And so he says to the disciples, no, no, guys, you feed them. Now, the thing you got to love about the disciples is that they're always so patient to explain to Jesus what he clearly doesn't understand about the scripture. (laughs) And they say, oh, Jesus, see, we would love to do that. But there's 5,000 hungry people and it would take a half year's wages to be able to feed them all. And they bring out a whiteboard and they show them how it all is going to be impossible. And so basically they say, back to you, Jesus. How does Jesus respond? It's pretty interesting. He simply asks, well, what do you have? Well, they don't have nothing. So they have to bring forth what they do have, which is a little boy with a sack lunch that his mom packed for him, right? For when he could go hear Jesus talk. And and so this has five loaves and two fish in it. And this is presented as the corporate resources that are going to meet this massive need. And this is where the Apostle Andrew enters the conversation because he's got a graduate degree from the University of Minnesota or something. And and he looks at the five loaves and two fish and he says, what are these among so many? See, honestly, this would have been me because I I went to college and I I took a math course. And and you've got 5,000 hungry people and five loaves and two fish. In fact, if you were as sophisticated as I am, you'd understand that there's nothing really for us to do but to sit in the paralysis of despair. (laughs) But what does Jesus say? He simply says, give it to me. And in that moment, he takes responsibility for the miracle and he proceeds to feed 5,000 people to overflowing. You'll notice he didn't ask the disciples if they had enough. He didn't ask the disciples to do the miracle. He just asked, well, what do you have? Will you give it to me so that I can do a miracle? And can I tell you, after 20 years of work with International Justice Mission, I have seen Jesus do this tens of thousands of times where he just asked us, what do you offer on behalf of those who are hurting and are being abused? And will you give it to me so I can do a miracle? Do you know the Kumar is no longer held in that brick factory as a slave? IGM's local Indian team was able to do an investigation, find where he was being held, work with the local authorities to rescue him and all 70 of those other slaves out and get them to a place of freedom and restoration. And I can tell you right now, amen. The Kumar is no longer wondering whether or not there is a good God. He knows there is a good God. 
And in fact, what he loves to do now is to tell others about the goodness of God. He's brilliant. He's gone to school. He now has come to work for IJM as an intern. And he's helped us rescue hundreds of others from slavery. And he has a testimony as to the goodness of God, as do now those hundreds of others. And likewise for Alina, she's no longer just trembling in fear because the, the biggest bully in the town can abuse her. IJM's local team of Filipino advocates took on her case and made sure that he was removed from his job as chief of police. And not only that, he's now serving a life sentence for all the abuse that he has been committing in that community. Once again, Alina is no longer having to wonder whether or not there is a good God. She knows there is a good God. She's gone off to college. She's now one of the most powerful spokespeople in her country fighting the problem of child sexual abuse. And she brings a testimony to the goodness of God. Likewise, Jyoti. She's no longer being serially raped inside that brothel. Our local IJM team was able to infiltrate that dark place, get her out, get her to a place of Christian aftercare where she came to know Jesus as her personal savior. But notice that phrase, Jesus, my personal savior. That's not an abstraction for her. She saw the body of Christ actually show up inside her nightmare and get her out. And now she knows she has life eternal and is so completely transformed by that that she came to us and she said, you know what? I know where other children are being held. And she led us on a second police raid that rescued seven more girls out. And one of the girls that was rescued there named Kalina, she said, I know where even more girls are being held. And she led us on a third police raid where on this night we rescued out 24 girls from this dungeon of unspeakable abuse. And on this particular day, they were brought out of this darkness to a place where they could actually know the goodness of God. This is the gospel going into the darkest places in our world. And these girls get to know the goodness of God because the body of Christ showed up for Jyoti. And then Jyoti showed up for these girls. This is the way in which the love of Christ is embodied in our witness and goes into the places of greatest fear and suffering and transforms them into places of light. This is how God is yearning to use you and me, not to do the miracle, but for us to offer what we have so he can do the miracle. In fact, if you think about that story of the feeding of the 5,000, you ever think about why Jesus did that the way that he did? I mean, if he was God, like, couldn't he have just dumped manna on everybody? Like, poof, manna, eat up and we'll get back to the teaching. I think he did it the way that he did for just one reason. I think he wanted to give one little boy a very cool day. Because that little boy goes home to his mom afterwards, right? And says, mom, guess what Jesus did with my lunch today? He fed 5,000 people. Do we imagine that that little boy will ever in his life forget that day? And yet did Jesus have to have the lunch in order to do the miracle? Or did he just love that little boy so much that he wanted to say, wait, wait, wait. Watch what I can do with your lunch today. What does this mean for all of us? 
It might suggest a a season of rediscovering God's love for the world, right? Rediscovering his passion for justice in the scriptures. Rediscovering how he can actually use the little lunch that he's given us to bring tangible rescue to those in the world who are in need. I know your pastors are are hoping that together off all these campuses over this weekend, we can raise $100,000 to help bring rescue through IJM's office in Calcutta for girls right now who just need to know that there's a God who loves them. That's what we get to do. I pray that we would respond with compassion. Because if you think about it, why in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, why, why have you and I been given so much? Do you ever think about this? You know, when I was growing up, I, I always wanted to be a great football player. And, and sadly, I turned out to be kind of a bad football player. But I had two older brothers who would sit me down and explain to me why I was a bad football player. And they would say, Gary, see, you're small, but you're slow. And so I would go to the weight room, you know, to work out, you know, to try to get bigger, just so I wouldn't get you know, crushed so badly on the football field. And I would go and I'd work out and I'd work out and nothing would happen to my body, but I would work out. And, but I would always look over in the gym, right? And there were always the bodybuilders. Have you seen these guys, right? They're huge, huge chests and arms and neck and legs. And I used to just look at all that muscle mass, all that strength and all that power that these bodybuilders had. And I just ask, but what's all that power and strength and muscle for? It's just for posing. <laughs> and the only time all that strength and power is ever really brought to bear is there's the crisis in the kitchen, right? And, the, and maybe the jam jar is stuck in it. And they pop open the jam jar. <laughs> My prayer for us is that in a world of so much suffering and hurt and need, that God will not leave us opening jam jars, but rescue us from all things that are just too small, rescue us from all things of fear, and lead us with courage into a world that's yearning to know the goodness of God through us. Will you pray with me? Kind Father, Thank you for the gentleness and patience with which you allow us to know you more deeply. Father, we ask that there might be some word from you this weekend that would be authentically from you and would actually take root in our heart and transform us. We don't want to exit the, the same people who came in to these buildings this weekend. We, we want to be changed. So lead us, God, with courage into your world that's yearning to see the goodness of God through us. And may it all go to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.